The Tennis Gambling Podcast and the Sports Gam Podcast are presented by Circa Sports. Circa Sports is back with their Circa Survivor and Circa Millions contests. $14 million up for grabs. Get all the details at circasports.com. Welcome, everybody, to the Tennis Gambling Podcast here on the Sports Gambling Podcast Network. It is currently Thursday morning, early Thursday morning, July 6th, and I'm your host, as always, Scott Reichel, going solo for this pod. Should be a fun one, uh, a pretty interesting one, because it is time to get into the second round of Wimbledon, kind of, because a couple of second-round matches were already played, and that has created a real circus when it comes to scheduling for the sake of this round, but still... I initially was going to consider doing an episode on each round. Then you had chaos with all the weather and all the delays. So I was not actually sure if I was going to do a podcast for this round, which is why the podcast is coming out so late. But I decided in the end to do it. So we are here for the second round of Wimbledon. I am aware, once again, Djokovic and a few others are already into the third round. Whatever. It is what it is. We'll deal with the matches that we have. And since this episode is coming out pretty late, I am aware that a lot of you might be worried about getting bets in on time because by the time you listen to it, it might be a little bit too late. So I purposefully chose some of the later matches on either Thursday or Friday to try to deal with those concerns. So if you're worried about a 6 a.m. start, I did not pick any of those matches. So you are off the hook there. Uh, But looking at the actual breakdown for this tournament so far got to start off with the picks from the last episode overall not a great episode just simply put the outrights were not great we ended up losing two outrights for the quarters we had a goop to win the quarter and he had a really weird match against Safulin, and he ended up losing in five i'm not going to say that he would have won the match had it not gotten delayed three separate times but it definitely killed momentum and Agut had just won the third set in a, in a pretty competitive set via tiebreak. And then I thought at that point, maybe Agut would be able to sustain that momentum, and they didn't play for another day. And then you ended up seeing Agut kind of run out of gas there. Older guy having to start and stop all the time, not the greatest spot for him. Uh, didn't help. He also blew a 5-1 lead in the second set tiebreak, and he had a couple set points, and he blew that. So he had a shot to win in straight sets, but he lost in the first round. So can't say I was close on that one, but Agut ended up losing. Then we had Korda as our main pick in one of the quarters, and he lost to Vesely in four. I'll get back to that in a second uh, later on, but I want to point out that the outrights were not great. Could have been worse. We'll see once again how everything shapes up at the end, uh, but still not the greatest start to the outrights. And as for the lock and dog picks, not much action. Ended up having the lock voided about an hour after the podcast aired because we had Gulfen plus the games against Kyrgios. I had nothing to do with Kyrgios because of injury. And what do you know, he retired or withdrew from the event about an hour after the podcast aired with a wrist injury, which was a little bit weird because I know he was battling a knee issue. But I don't know if his body was overcompensating, and then the wrist got hurt, or maybe he just aggravated something in practice. But Kyrgios ended up withdrawing, and I'm assuming Golfen probably would have won uh, the match if they ended up playing it outright. But still, uh, not surprised that Kyrgios, in hindsight, withdrew. Worth the shot, though. I'll take that gamble every time. And worst case scenario, we got our money back. As for the dog... Ended up losing. We faded Casper Ruud, took Lacoli, who was a qualifier, and it was a pretty competitive match. The first set was a destruction, lost the first set 6-1. Then he won the second set, so Lacoli actually had 
a pretty decent shot to win the match or at least make some noise. And he tried his best. Rude was the better player, just simply put. Lacoli had no backhand whatsoever. And I thought his shot selection was pretty poor. But it was mostly the lack of a backhand. And Rude eventually just wore him down as the match progressed. But I have no regrets taking a plus 419 underdog and it's tied a set apiece. You could have gotten a, a pretty solid hedge opportunity live if you wanted to. If you wanted to play it safe and you want to take Lacoli to win a set, the bare minimum of support at around minus 160 that did get there. But Rude should not have been Rude should not have been minus 500. I stand by that pick. And even though Lacoli did struggle, you could have hedged midway through if you wanted some profit. So I do think that the line was definitely mispriced. But unfortunately, it did not matter in the end because Lacoli just could not get the job done. But if you once again, if you took the plus two and a half sets, you did end up getting a winner or the over, or really anything involving Lacoli with the spread. The spread, I'm actually, I'm not sure about, because he did lose the first set 6-1. Uh, but I know for the games, I believe that did go over in the end. So, could have been worse. But still, point is, not the greatest way to start the show, or start the tournament, I should say. So, hopefully, we'll get back on track here in round two. Before we get into any of the match previews, though, I'm probably going to pick a couple of random matches out of a hat. I just give my thoughts on them before getting into the lock and dog pick. I do have a couple of rants that I want to get into from the first few days of Wimbledon. First things first, I got to talk about the organizers because I have no idea what Wimbledon is even doing on a day-in, day-out basis. It has been so disorganized, and I got to talk about it. So first things first, I'm aware that it's going to rain in England. That's not their fault. That's going to happen. We know there's a stereotype involving rain in uh, London and in England. It's a warranted stereotype. It rains all the time. I mean, it's like saying it's going to rain in Seattle. Like, it's not exactly a shock. However, there were a couple of moments where the organizers could have done a better job of actually getting matches played. And that's kind of what I want to talk about. So for starters, you ended up having the uh, play get delayed because of rain, which is, you know, once again going to happen. Then you're going to resume it briefly. And this is kind of a brief little uh, segue that I want to start off with. You're telling me Wimbledon's been around for this long and you can't afford lights on the outdoor courts. The fact that you can't play because of darkness in 2023 is absolutely ridiculous. And I do think that it is worth talking about because once again, when you're going to be backlogged with rain, Quite often, most years, you're going to have a couple of uh, matches delayed. It's going to happen pretty much year in, year out. you got to make up as much time as possible. And I understand the argument is, well, you don't want to play it that late. You don't want people to stay that late because they have lives to get to. Then they can leave. Like, I don't know what I'm going to tell you, but there's no reason why darkness should be an issue when you can afford all the lighting you possibly want. Because Wimbledon was actually the most prepared, just for reference here, for the pandemic. Just to backtrack, maybe you don't know the story, maybe you do. But we know that some of the Grand Slam events were compromised in COVID, and you ended up seeing some just completely voided outright. Wimbledon was the only one that I remember that actually had pandemic insurance. So Wimbledon, despite not hosting the event in 2020, made $141 million because of pandemic insurance. You're telling me with $141 million, you can't afford lamps on the outdoor courts? Come on. You got to put some of that money to use. I just find it insane that you're that you're voiding play because of darkness. Get some light stands out there. Get some lighting. It's 2023. 
Like, get with the times here. You can do a better job. The fact that you had to postpone a couple of matches, not even just on the first day, but also on Wednesday due to darkness is insane to me. So I wanted to mention that first. That should definitely not be a thing. Get better lighting. That's the first thing I want to talk about. Then I have to talk about the actual handling of the roof with some of the main courts. Now, like most other Grand Slam venues, they started to implement roofs on the main two, three courts, because that way, if fans end up paying for tickets and the matches get rained out outside, they don't completely waste their money. And there are a couple of matches that will get underway. That's also why Djokovic is into the third round, because he played both of his matches indoors with the roof. So because of that, he was able to get by without any rain issues. But the reason why I bring it up is because the handling of the roof yesterday was mind-boggling, just mind-boggling. It was so dumb. So it's been raining for basically two straight days, right? And according to the weather report, rain's not supposed to be an issue for Wednesday's action. So you're thinking, okay, you know, we're going to make up some matches, keep the roof, the roof open, and we're going to play some tennis. It started raining in the morning. You know, sometimes meteorologists can be wrong. And it was a light drizzle, nothing extreme. And they decided to keep the roof open so they delayed matches for about another 30 minutes or 45 minutes and then it stopped raining they kept but they kept the roof open i don't understand why you can't just leave the roof closed at some point when you've been rained out for a day or two straight maybe you shouldn't leave it to chance with the weather maybe you should just constantly leave the roof down so you can at least play the matches and it stopped raining and they were kind of preparing for more rain, so they still didn't do anything, and they were just stalling for about 45 minutes. It was insane, and I thought that the planning, once again, from Wimbledon, in every aspect, has been just bad. And I think it's pretty safe to say that they need to definitely improve the lighting on the outdoor courts. You also need to improve the decision-making when it comes to the actual roofs uh, for the... Uh, main courts because they should be down almost all the time. I don't care how nice the weather is in England. It rains all the time there. You got to be prepared. So that's my main uh, rants there for the actual handling by the tournament organizers themselves. Now I got to pivot into some of the other, I'd say, I don't want to say idiots, but I want to say some of the people that might have been embarrassing or some of the players that messed up over the last couple of days. Mostly Americans, so it's going to be some friendly fire. But I got to start off with some overall recap of matches here. First things first, Isner's got to retire. It's over. You can't lose in four sets to Munar with no tiebreakers and get broken five times on grass and expect me to take you seriously. It's over. You know, Isner, good run, I guess. I always thought he was one of the most overrated players of all time. But he has won a decent amount of titles, mostly 250s. I think he won one Masters 1000 in Miami a couple years ago, but that was basically it. I never thought he was that good, but he was a pretty steady member of the top 20, and I think his career is over. So at this point, he might be a doubles guy. I know he's with Sock, I believe, in Wimbledon. So we'll see how they do, because that's actually a pretty good doubles team. But for singles purposes, Isner losing in four sets to Munar on grass is embarrassing. So that's where I want to start off. So he got eliminated. I want to switch over to the women's side. Coco Goff. She also got eliminated. Lost in straight sets to Kennan. Uh, I've roasted Goff several times on the show. I think she's highly overrated. 
I don't think she's in line to win a Grand Slam anytime soon. I understand that every now and then you get a phenom and you want to make them the next up-and-coming superstar, especially for American tennis, who's been starved for another uh, tennis superstar for a long time. But I just never thought Goff was as good as people said she was. And I know she got uh, officially promoted, I guess, to the main tour at the age of 15 or so. But she's just not even close, just simply put. Kenan kind of was able to wear her down. The unforced errors were a serious concern for Goff. But I wanted to mention it because she was one of the somewhat, I don't want to say favorites, but she was expected to make a somewhat deep run. I thought she'd make actually somewhat of a deep run. And Kenan won comfortably. I know it went three sets, but the third set was really never in doubt. And then you saw the broadcast booth afterwards when they go to the studio and everyone was roasting Goff for her racket holding positioning and her footwork. And it just seems like Goff is really, really struggling and she needs to drastically change some of her uh, aspect, some of the techniques that she uses if she wants to make it to the next level. And I know, I believe she made it to a Grand Slam final a, a year ago or so, and then Swiatek beat the hell out of her. But still, the point is, Coco Goff, I wanted to mention too, embarrassing showing by her, who was viewed as being one of the threats to make a run here, and she lost immediately, so that's embarrassing there. Then I want to pivot over to what I watched yesterday, which was Cressy, and he lost in four sets to DeGere, uh, all tie breaks, but I got to at least mention, Cressy in the fourth set won a total of two return points. In the entire set, two return points, and one of them was a double fault. So when Dajir got a serve in play, Cressy won one point in the entire fourth set. Embarrassing. Get out of here. That's all I want to say there, too. I'm trying to think of anything else I want to add uh, for the Americans. I mentioned isn't already. The, I, there's one I got to mention, which is the biggest... A clown moment of the week. It's got to be Corda. And it's not just because we talked about Corda to win the quarter and we gave him out. I'm ignoring that for a second. Corda in Queens Club was playing very good tennis. And he eventually ran into Alcaraz. He lost in straight sets. No shame in that. But during that time period, he was being interviewed about his expectations for Wimbledon. And Corda said he viewed himself as one of the favorites in the event and basically, he thought he was going to be able to make a deep run. He lost in the first round to Vesely in four sets. I, I can't even comprehend how embarrassing that is and how dumb Corda looks because he called himself a serious threat or a favorite. He used the word favorite to win the event, and he lost in the first round to a guy that's played basically three matches in the entire year. Now, I am aware that Vesely did serve insanely well. I'm not taking that away from Vesely. Vesely played really, really well, and he ended up winning 76% of his first serve points, 23 aces. He was solid. Like, I'm aware of that. However, I got to at least bring up the fact that Korda was a minus 1,000 favorite, and Vesely had played in preparation for Wimbledon one match. He played one grass, sorry, he played two grass matches. He lost in three sets to Lloyd Harris, and he lost in straight sets to. Peniston. Those are the only two matches that he played on grass. And yet he ended up winning in four sets against one of the quote unquote favorites to win the event. Corda looks like an absolute clown here. 
I got to roast them. It is what it is. You can't call yourself a favorite and lose to Vesely in the first round. Get out of my face. Uh, besides that, I'm trying to think of anything else I want to talk about. There was also some outside of Wimbledon issues with American tennis because Brooksby, you might be wondering what happened to him. He was suspended for 12 months for avoiding three separate drug tests. And according to him, he has an alibi for one of them, which was he showed up in the right place at the right time and the tester never showed up. Did he answer what happened to the other two tests? No. But let's forget about that for a second. Brooksby, once again, might have ditched two drug tests. The, I believe him on the one excuse, so I'll let him off the hook for that one. We'll see what happens on the other two. I don't know how you miss three drug tests. One, okay, it happens. Three, I don't know how you miss three in the span of a couple months. So Brooksby, until we find out officially what happened, I might reserve my judgment, but he sounds like a clown if he actually did miss three or two in this case in the span of a couple of months. So he might get suspended for a year because he didn't show up for the for the actual drug testing, which is a separate concern, but not a good week for American tennis. And it was pretty embarrassing, to be honest. So those are my overall breakdowns for the, uh, I don't even know what you want to call it, the donkey of the week, the donkey of the tournament so far. Yeah, there you go. So a lot of Americans either are getting eliminated early and looking like idiots or just looking like idiots without potentially getting eliminated. If I had to pick my winner for the most embarrassing showing for the last couple of days, it's easily Corda. I mean, that's that's ridiculous. You're, I'm one of the favorites to win the event, and you lose to a guy who's barely played any tennis, a guy who has not won a grass match in over a year as a minus 1,000 favorite. Yeah, enjoy. Uh, looking forward to seeing you in the U.S. Open. Uh, yeah, but I don't really have much more to add there. That's going to do it for the recap for the first couple of days. Mostly negatives because this tournament's been a circus, but I wanted to at least try to be fair with my criticisms. Anyway, as for the actual schedule for Thursday, there are a couple of first-round matches that are still underway. Uh, so... Once again, you have a couple of people in the third round already, and the first round matches aren't even done yet. As a result, though, that does lead to a couple of really bad scheduling spots for some players, and I will mention one in the lock and dog segment. But for the sake of this show, let's talk about some matches I'm kind of tempted by. I'm going to start off with an early match, uh, just one that caught my eye. I'm going to talk about the Musetti and Munar match. I just mentioned how Munar was able to beat uh, post-prime Isner, I don't want to call him Deathbed Isner, but it looked like it uh, in that match. Taking on Musetti. Musetti has looked really good so far on grass, and he's a massive favorite here at around minus one, uh, around minus 700, give or take. However, for this match, I actually do like Musetti to win in straight sets at plus 115. Simply put, I just think that Musetti's actually a good grass court player. I don't think Munar's good on grass. I just think Isner, once again, cannot move. And as a result, the velocity has definitely dropped from Isner's first serve. The percentage hasn't been great. And I don't want to call it or completely disrespect Munar's performance, but I have to at least point out that Musetti is much more comfortable on the surface. He had an easy win against Varius in the first round, uh, and that was on the third, actually. So he has not played for about two, three days. And the same can be said about Munar. So uh, it is pretty interesting. Uh, how both these guys have not had to do anything for about two days. But I do think that Musetti to win in straight sets is worth a look at plus money, and I think he'll probably win. Maybe get a tiebreaker in there, but Munar still can't serve, and I do think that Musetti has the firepower and the consistency to make life difficult for Munar. So I do like Musetti to win that one in straight sets. I like the over in the Bublik and Wolf match there. 
Uh, I think that Wolf's potentially live. I know that Bublik did win in four sets against McDonald. Fun match there. And McDonald, I think, might be slightly better than Wolf on grass. It is pretty close. But the total games here is fed at 40, give or take. I can see a marathon here. Bublik, we know, can be a head case at times. The double fault thing is always going to be a concern. And Wolf still has a great forehand. I can see a marathon match there. So I am actually going to lean to the over in that match. I think you might get four sets. Wolf is also uh, 3-0 lifetime. They've not faced off on grass, all on hard court. But Wolf being 3-0, I actually do think can suggest he's alive to win the match. And Wolf is around plus 175. I don't hate that price, but I think I'd rather take the over or maybe if you like Bublik to win, Bublik to win, and each player to win a set. So in other words, Bublik in four or five is maybe worth a look. But I think Wolf is actually quite live to make this match interesting. Uh, besides that, though, uh, moving forward to anything else I might be interested in, uh, Rayonich against Paul I find pretty fascinating. Paul is around minus 227. Uh, Rayonich is around plus 175. Rayonich looked good in his first-round match. Did lose the first set in a tiebreak to Novak but bounced back after that and won the final three sets. As for Paul, he looked good, faced off against a relative unknown Japanese player, and he won in straight sets. The issue with Paul, though, is that he's still undersized, and with Rayonich being that good of a server, I'm not sure how many times Paul's actually going to be able to break Rayonich. Paul's six foot one, but I do think Rayonich with the speed and the volley game is going to be really difficult to break here. And I do think that Paul, who made a grass final uh, right before Wimbledon, has played some good tennis recently as well. I'm looking at the over in that match. We know Rayonich is no stranger to tiebreakers, and the actual over-under is at 39.5. I like the over here. I think you'll see at least one tiebreaker, potentially four or five sets. I think it'll be a very competitive battle. I don't mind Rayonich plus the three and a half games. I think Rayonich could potentially win a set 6-3. Paul could win a couple of sets via tiebreaker. And, of course, with that being the case, he only gains one game on the spread in those tiebreaker sets. So I think Rayonich is actually quite alive, assuming his stamina is good enough to survive another 3-5 to five match. But I think for the sake of this one, the dog is pretty appealing here. I do think that the over 39.5 games would be my best option, expecting some long matches, uh, some long sets, including maybe a breaker or two. So that's another thought that I have. Uh, I am also tempted by just going randomly and matches that catch my eye. I am kind of interested in the Leshika against Sarundalo match. Sarundalo is the favorite at minus 125, and Leshika is plus 100 the other way. Uh, Leshika had a nice win against Offner yesterday as he won in straight sets. Sarundalo played yesterday as well. He went to four sets against Borges, and he came back from a set down. I think Leshika is quite alive to win this match. And I'm actually going to pick him to win this match. Uh, he's a good grass court player. He's got a good serve, can volley a little bit. But I do think Sarandolo is going to deal with some fatigue because he played yesterday. And this is what I mentioned earlier when I talked about some bad scheduling spots. So you're looking at Sarandolo, who's ju- who just won a grass tournament as he beat Tommy Paul in the final right before uh, in Eastbourne, Wimbledon. But the point is he played a full tournament and then he has to play back-to-back days it's not the greatest spot here for overall stamina. And even though Laheshka has to play back back days too, he did win in straight sets and he did not make a deep run in a tournament the previous weekend. So he should be more rested. And if this match is going to be a long one, which it might be, I am concerned about Sarundalo's stamina in this one. And overall, Sarundalo is not known for being a great grass court player. He's fine. But I do think that Laheshka has value. 
especially with the scheduling spot. So I'll go with Laheshka on the money line here. I think Sarandolo is a little bit uh, vulnerable in the spot, and I think the odds don't reflect that enough. They reflect it because, once again, Sarandolo just won a grass event, and you'd assume it'd be a bigger favorite than minus 125. I think it might be a bit trappy, so I'm going to look for Laheshka in that one, probably in four sets if I had to guess. Besides that, though, there are a couple of late matches I want to talk about. You have a matchup between... Uh, let's go with uh, Medvedev and Manorino. So Medvedev is around minus 455, and Med- and uh, Manorino is plus 333. Simply put, I think these odds are way off. Uh, Medvedev ended up struggling a little bit with a British unknown in Ferry. He did win in three sets, but it was close. 7-5, 6-4, 6-3. Uh, Manorino, on the other hand, completely buried Shevchenko, and he won that one 6-3, 6-3, 6-2. But I think there's value on Manorino because... Manorino just beat Medvedev in the middle of June on grass. So I do think that Manorino, of course, has the confidence to beat Medvedev because he just beat him less than a full month ago in Denbush. So I think that he's got value to get the job done here. Not to mention the fact that in the head-to-head lifetime, Manorino is actually ahead as Manorino is 4-2 and two lifetime head-to-head. So I think there's value on Manorino there. Um, Medvedev might win the match at 3-5, to five, but... We have seen him kind of struggle in some of these three out of five matches ever since. Um, I'm trying to even think of the last time he had a really impressive showing in a Grand Slam. It's been a long time. He really has not had a great showing lately in Grand Slams. And I do think that Manorino can beat him. We know Manorino is willing to partake in seriously long rallies with Medvedev. And his junk ball style can give Medvedev some problems. I think Manorino is alive to make some noise in that match. I'm not saying he's going to win. But I do think that he can definitely keep Medvedev on the hot seat for most of the match. And I'm going to take him plus the games there. The line just seems off to me. And Manorino for the games is at plus five and a half. That's pretty tempting to me. I think that line seems a little bit too large. I might, my, I actually might like an alt line there. Potentially plus four and a half. Maybe if you want to take Manorino uh, plus... If you want to take the over three and a half sets, that's a minus 160 that I do like. I think that's probably going to get there. But I do think Manorino is quite alive to make that match interesting. And Medvedev, once again, has not been dominant in three out of five matches. Plus, historically speaking, Medvedev is atrocious in the fifth set of matches. So if it does go to a fifth set, Manorino should have an advantage because Medvedev, surprisingly, is really bad in five in the fifth set. So I wanted to mention that. So Manorino, I am tempted by as well. Besides that, moving into one of the later matches, you have Murray taking on Sitsipas, and Murray is a minus 145 favorite. Simply put, I like Murray in this matchup. Sitsipas has been really bad uh, so far after the Australian Open. He did manage to win in his first round matchup against a team but damn, man, he didn't look good. He was down two sets to one. Team I've been roasting for a year at this point because he's well past his prime. And Team was never good on grass. And yet Sitsipas had to go five sets down. Uh, sorry, he was not down two sets to one. He was up to one. Then he lost the fourth set in a breaker. He went to a fifth set super breaker against post-prime Team on grass. That's kind of embarrassing. He won the match, though, so kudos to him, I guess. But damn, man, he doesn't look good. And Murray was able to win comfortably against Peniston in the first round. He looked fantastic. I think Murray being favored tells you a lot. Sitsipas is in bad form. 
Give me Murray. I think Sinti Paz probably gets shelled here, but I think Murray probably ends up winning in three or four sets. Uh, besides that, though, there is a late match I want to mention, which I find intriguing between Shelton and Dejir. Shelton's around minus 227. Dejir's plus 175. Uh, both players had marathon matches in the first round. Shelton ended up almost blowing or technically he did blow a two sets to nothing lead because Daniel did force the fifth set, but Shelton got back on track and he won the final set 6-3. Dejir won uh, yesterday against Cressy, and I mentioned how he only lost two service points in the entire fourth set. Cressy is one of the worst returners I've ever seen, but Dejir served well, and I think Dejir, who's usually been a bad grass court player, has actually looked pretty good on grass this year. I think he's quite alive to win this one. Shelton is a player who has talent, but he really does not make life easy on himself because he double faults a lot and there's a lot of unforced errors and Dejir has played some good tennis. I don't think that Shelton should be this big of a favorite at around uh, in the minus 200 range. I really do think that you're looking at a price point that seems off. Uh, Shelton, I think, should be closer to minus 130. Minus 140. I think it's really close. And I do think that Dejir, who is 1-0 in the head-to-head, it was on clay, though. It was earlier this year, and Shelton's not known for being a clay guy. But Dejir has played well recently, and I do think that he has a shot to win this match. I like the over. I think you'll see a couple breakers, and I think it's going to be a long one. And at 40.5 games, what the oddsmakers are expecting. But I do think that, once again, you're looking at what could be a five-setter. And I do think that Dejir has some life to win this match. Maybe you want to take the games. You can take Dejir plus two and a half games at even money. That might be tempting. But I do think that Shelton is a bit too overvalued here. And I think as a result, there's some value on Dejir. That's going to kind of do it, though, for the sake of this episode. Once again, it's kind of a last second episode because of how crazy the schedule has been in Wimbledon. We're back once again with the normal schedule for round three, assuming the weather cooperates. But I decided to make this or do this episode at the last minute because I promised you that I would do an episode for each round. But with the weird scheduling and everything that's going on, it is really tough to fully uh, gauge how the stamina is going to be or the conditioning for all these athletes who have to constantly start start matches and stop matches and just do the whole thing over again. And then they have to go back on the court to play their second round. There's a lot of uncertainty because their routine goes out the window having to constantly warm up and practice and play real tennis and then stop again and do it again. I'm really curious how it's going to affect some of these players moving forward. But for the sake of this episode, those are my thoughts on some of the matches that I'm interested in. And once again, the lock and dog picks will be some of the later matches to try to help all of you get uh, actually have time to put in the bets. But once again, we're going to go through the lock and dog picks, my favorite picks for round two. Before we do that, kind of a quick word from our sponsor. We're also brought to you by Circa Sports. Circa Millions and Circa Survivor are back. $14 million in guaranteed prizes up for grabs. Circa Millions is pretty simple. Five NFL picks against the spread each week. There's a leaderboard, and depending on how well you do, you can make yourself some serious money. On top of that, Circa Survivor is a different but fun way to get in on the NFL action. Pick a different Moneyline winner each week. You cannot use, once again, the same team twice, and whoever's the last team standing or last person standing ends up winning the grand prize, or if most multiple people do make it to the end of the season, then you chop whatever the grand prize is. And on top of that, you can enter in Vegas, but play from anywhere using a proxy and sports game podcast will be out there last weekend in August. So stop by and say hi to the gang circus for all the details circus What would you do? 
if you ended up winning all that money, possibilities are endless. I would probably go on vacation. I'd travel a lot, maybe buy a ticket to the Super Bowl. We'd see. But the point is, it would be a lot of fun to, of course, get in on the action by winning. And for me, the picks that I'll look at for Survivor, there's a lot of potential options. Once again, the season's so far out there. I would fade the Cardinals, just simply put, with Kyler being on the shelf. And we know Arizona's got the lowest win total of any team. I'd probably just fade the Cardinals, play it safe. There's different philosophies when it comes to Survivor, where some people try to save the best teams for last. Others try to just get the best teams out of the way because you have more faith in them. I'm more of an option B guy. I'd rather just try to survive as long as possible and worry about the planning after. But I do think taking the commanders in the first game at home against the Cardinals is worth a look because the Cardinals should be a mess. So that would be my thoughts for the week one of Survivor. But once again, get in on the action at Circus Sports, CircusSports.com for all of the details. We're also brought to you by Underdog Fantasy. Best Ball Mania 4 is here, and Underdog Fantasy is giving away $15 million in prizes. Underdog Pick'em is also another great way to get down your favorite MLB and college baseball player props. So many ways to win over at Underdog, and it's active in so many states. Head over to UnderdogFantasy.com. Use the promo code SGPN for a 100% deposit bonus up to $100. It's UnderdogFantasy.com, promo code SGPN. Welcome back, everyone, to the Tennis Gambling Podcast. Just finished previewing the second round, or what's left of it, of Wimbledon. Now it's time for the lock and dog picks. Starting off with the lock, I'm aware, I said a couple of weeks ago, that if I ever took Andy Murray again, you had the right to punch me in the face. However, I have to at least point out how crazy the scheduling spot is, and as a result, I think I'm going to temporarily wave my ban on Murray. It's going to be dangerous, but I'll make a somewhat, I'll make a compromise here. You can slap me in the face if Murray loses this match. If he wins, though, then, you know, once again, I'm damage-free. But for the sake of this podcast, I am going to go with Murray on the money line as my lock at minus 145. Simply put, I know Murray has been a thorn in my side for a long time, but I really just cannot ignore the scheduling spot. It is so good. It's practically handed to Murray on a platter. So to set the scene here, Murray, I mentioned before, was able to destroy Penniston in his first round match. And on top of that, it was under a roof, so there was no delay. They were able to finish the match a couple of days ago. The reason why I bring that up is because since Paz's match against team got delayed on several occasions, that does mean that Paz had to play a five-setter yesterday, and he's got no time off in between. So Paz had to play a couple of sets yesterday. It was a four-hour match. Now he has a a quick turnaround with no off day against a guy with an off day in front of his home country. And on top of that, Murray, we know, is much more comfortable on grass than Sitsipas is. Murray's actually 10-1 and straight up on grass this year. The one lost just so happened to be the time we backed him. But he has been good on grass, and I have to at least give it to him. Sitsipas has been a mess, and I'm not going to overreact to him winning a match in five sets against post-prime team, who historically is not good on grass. So I think Sitsipas is going to lose relatively comfortably in this match, and I do think that the scheduling spot for Murray is so good that I actually have to wave my ban on him. If he loses, then once again, I might get slapped in person, and I'll add Murray to the double-secret probation list. But I do think that Murray, once again, with this scheduling spot, it's so it's just such a good spot, and Sitsipas has looked so bad I think Murray's going to get it done. So give me Murray on the money line at minus 145. If you want to play, if you want to go for some 
potentially better odds. Maybe Murray minus two games. Maybe Murray minus one and a half sets of plus 130. But I'm going to play it safe. Just give me the Murray money line at minus 145. And for my dog, I'm actually going to go with an underdog, but I'm not going to take a money line. I'm going to take an alternative game spread. I'm going to go with Manorino. I'm going to take him plus four and a half games at plus 110 on FanDuel. Simply put, I just think that these odds are a bit insane when Medvedev has not that played that well in Grand Slams recently, and Manorino just beat him on grass a couple weeks ago, and now Medvedev's a pretty hefty favorite. I understand Medvedev is the much higher-ranked player, but Manorino's been playing good tennis, and I know that he lost in a final in Mallorca to Eubanks right before the event, but I do think, once again, with him cruising in his first-round match and Medvedev winning against an unknown, but it wasn't the easiest match, kind of tells you how dangerous Manorino is on grass. And I do think that with Manorino winning the head-to-head battle 4-2 right now, including the most recent meeting on grass, I think Manorino is quite alive to win a couple of sets here. I think that Manorino could potentially win the match outright. But I do think that when you're looking at Medvedev and his overall career, there's been a discussion or a general theme that people have called him a hardcore specialist. And it seemed a bit harsh. And once again, he did win a clay Masters 1000 event, and he has been pretty good on grass in the past. But the truth is, his Grand Slam events, when you look at the results, the hardcore event results are so much better than the grass and the clay uh, clay Grand Slams because his best service is hardcore, and it's really not even close. I don't think Medvedev is that good of a grass court player. There are a lot worse grass court players out there, but he's not the most comfortable guy on that surface. Manorino is. His best surface is easily grass, and I do think that he can really give Medvedev problems with his junk ball hitting strategy and technique. Give me Manorino plus four and a half games and plus 110. I think he's going to make this interesting. I think he might take a set 6-3, and I do think if you're looking at a four or five set war, I'm going to take the games of the underdog. So once again, my lock and dog picks for the show. My lock is going to be on Murray Moneyline at minus 145, and my dog is going to be Manorino plus four and a half games at plus 110. That's going to wrap it up for this episode. We're back once again, maybe tomorrow for round three. Once again, it really comes down to the Wimbledon scheduling, so we'll see, but there will be an episode for round three. Find me on Twitter, Rush Show Radio. Find me on the NBA show. Find me on the NFL show. Find me on the, uh, trying to think, the WNBA show, bunch of podcasts. Either way, good luck to all of you and all of your bets. Bye, everyone.